0: It's considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. An enormous statue carved from limestone, the Great Sphinx has intrigued generations of scholars, explorers, and researchers. But what if the builders of the Great Sphinx had a little bit of help? Now, we're, we're not talking ancient aliens, but what if the creators had a little assistance from Mother Nature? My guest is Lee Reistroth. An experimental physicist and applied mathematician at NYU who specializes in fluid dynamics. He and his team have been working on an exciting experiment that may show how the initial shape of the sphinx was made by natural means, giving the ancient sculptors a visual cue and a starting point for their creativity. My name is Eric Erickson. I'm an author journalist, researcher, and lifelong student of history. I'm fascinated by new knowledge that challenges society's belief system and what we think really happened in the past. Join me for conversations with historians, archeologists, scientists, and people who are changing the very way we view history. Welcome to Unlocking the Past. physicist and an applied mathematician. How do you go from that to the Sphinx?
1: How do, where um, is that jump? That is a big jump. I study fluid dynamics, which is the math, physics, engineering of how fluids flow. Um, and this, this is a, an old subject, but still a hard subject. And uh, I guess one of the main reasons why I like it is because it touches a lot of other fields. So um, I I actually study fluid dynamics as applied to or as towards understanding problems like um, biological problems. So like this field of biological fluid dynamics is thinking about things like animal swimming, animal breathing, how we breathe, uh, aerodynamics around birds and bird flight. And so it can touch a lot of different areas like that. And in addition, a similar type of thing is um, sort of like geophysical or Earth-inspired fluid dynamics, Mm. another set of problems that we look at. And so uh, when I look at you, Eric, I see a bag of fluids surrounded by fluids, fluids inside, fluids outside. We're breathing air. We've got blood flowing around inside of us. And similarly with the Earth, if you look at the Earth, you've got actually a very little part of the Earth is solid material. The inside is boiling rock. It's flowing around. The outside is obviously atmosphere and ocean. So be- beautiful fluids, problems inside and out again. So um, that that's one thing I really like It's fluid mechanics, fluid dynamics takes you into a lot of different directions that maybe you didn't think about going in from the very beginning.
0: Yeah, you have a very unique view of the world. It's, it's interesting because it's, there's the scientific glasses, let's call them that, like whatever field you're in, you look at the world through those glasses because that's what you're passionate about. I mean, we talked very briefly before the show about, you know, in my family, it's genealogy and history. So I look at the world through these glasses that highlight that. You look at it through fluid dynamics.
1: It, it, uh, yeah, Exactly. When when you look out and I you know at clouds or at uh, birds flying, I will I will see things there that I'm kind of think about. Oh, how does how does that work? Or, and and similarly, uh, when I look out over a landscape, we think about okay uh, landforms, rivers. How do these things get shaped? And actually, this is the sort of field which is called geomorphology that kind of directed me and eventually landed me on the Sphinx is understanding how flowing air and water shape the face of the Earth, and even other planets as well. But how do they give shape to the landforms that we see around us?
0: So through your study, I I was reading some of it. Part of what you got into was the idea that, over time, the limestone that the Sphinx is created from was shaped. And it's not an uncommon shape it's not enough there are other pieces out there they're called yardangs correct that's right naturally formed shapes that then people look at them and they're like "Huh, that's a lion that's a which i i find funny because going back to what we said a couple minutes ago there's an actual um it's called a pareidolia that's when people look at clouds and they're like oh that looks like a sheep Oh, that <laughs> looks like my Aunt Martha, that there, there's a term for that. And as I was reading about your work, somewhere at some point, somebody looked at this huge chunk of limestone and went, that looks like a giant lion with that should have a big head.
1: Yeah, so definitely when when you look at natural forms, I mean, that's, I think, part of the most basic fascination, I think, draws us to, to look at pattern and, and forms in nature. Is that we do? Uh, I mean, just immediately see something in there. Mm. We maybe it's you know maybe it's a that's kind of a little psychological test of us <laughs> what we see. In <laughs> sort of think about the Sphinx problem and you think about what the people's wandering around in the deserts, maybe a little dehydrated, maybe a little you know mirage type type of setting there. Um, what they might have have seen there, uh, it's it's really fascinating and the, you know. When we think about the Sphinx, we don't know what they saw when they first got to that site, that location. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I think is an interesting part about the mystery behind our story is we don't know and maybe we'll never know what they saw there. I think what our experiments show, at least it's possible they saw something that was so striking that they just felt compelled to make a monument out of it. So I think that that maybe is something that we learned from our study.
0: How long did it take for it to be formed to that point? Were you able to kind of get numbers and ideas based on your research?
1: Um, we haven't extrapolated uh, from the sort of like timescales that we see in our experiments mm-hmm. to a natural timescale. Um, I, I, you know, it's going to be eons. These are things. These these yardangs. Uh, or These, these Yardangs, by the way, get a, some funny names because they look so much like animals. So uh, I mean, one name is called a Sphinx-like Yardang, so Sphinx-like, it looks like the Sphinx. Um, and then other ones are called uh, mud lions is another term for it, mm. a desert dog, a desert dog is another name. So they, they tend to look like a seated, you know, cat or dog-like animal with its head raised. Um, and and uh, I think uh, you know how fast these things form in nature has to do with wind erosion, the erodibility of the material there, which is limestone, as you mentioned earlier. For the case of the Sphinx, um, in our experiments, the way I the way I view an experiment with regard to understanding the shapes of landforms, I, I think it's I think of it as really a little setting where you get to compress time and space what i mean by that is you know these things in nature would form over eons in our lab we use soft clay that's being eroded by a current of water and these things form in hours so Mm. we've compressed time into something very manageable where we can see you know a formation kind of grow in front of us Uh, and then also it's compressing space because you know it's obviously hard to do a field measurement on some you know structure that can be as big as a yardang, but in our lab, we can sort of make mini yardangs that are ten centimeters, you know several inches in size, and really do very nice measurements about uh, the shapes that come out and their and their, how they change in time.
0: Do you get the data to do that from weather patterns? Where does that come from? Can you look at the weather from now or the wind or the erosion and say, well, this is the same as it was X number of years ago, or, you know, it's coming off that hill and then it comes down this valley or like, where does all that come from? How do you figure that out?
1: So I think it's difficult to do that kind of mapping back in time to know what the environmental and, the you know, climate conditions, weather conditions at a given site were, especially when we're, you know, we're... we're Absolutely uncertain about what was even there, when when this thing was encountered, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago by the ancient Egyptians. So we don't know that, but um, but what we do know a little more about is existing yardangs. So uh, existing yardangs have a few basic ingredients in common. They do tend to uh, form in places where there is a predominant wind pattern, meaning the wind is not just coming from all possible directions. It has a prevailing pattern. It tends to, for example, come off the water or, you know, if, if there's a nearby sea or whatever, it comes in one direction predominantly due to the temperature conditions and such and, and the geography. Um, of course, that's not strictly true, right? I mean, the wind will blow from all directions at different times and different strengths, but ha- there's a there's a pattern there. And um, that that's one ingredient that's kind of like known by the real card-carrying geologists, which I am not. So we we have to go and read papers and things and learn about that. Um, and then another factor that definitely is consistent is that it tends to form, these yardangs tend to form in materials that are variable in their composition. So they have hard bits and soft bits. It may be something like limestone, which is a material compacted into, into make a rock. But that degree of compaction is naturally variable throughout it. So Mm -hmm. there's hard bits, there's soft bits. And we think these factors are very important in the formation of yardangs. And our experiments, because we're not geologists, uh, we're kind of math and physics people, as you point out, we, we take these two extremes in different ways, like the wind conditions and the material conditions in our experiments. So we do things like. Like have our effective wind coming strictly from one direction as an extreme. And, uh, we have, uh, some other extremes in terms of the composition of our material. So our experiments basically involve soft clay, which is like our rock Mm -hmm. that's going to be eroded by a current of water. And, uh, to model the variable composition or like the differences in erodibility in different places. We did things like put inside the clay hard material that effectively was not erodible, uh, not not on the timescales that we looked at. So we kind of took things to, to extremes to try to simplify the problem a bit. And what we are after in this is finding, are there some simple conditions that can carve or lead to the carving of a Sphinx-like shape or a Yardang-like shape? And uh, what are those conditions and how robust are they? Those were the kind of questions that we were able to, to get after.
0: Yeah, that I find that interesting what you talked about, about the non-erodible, my word, non-erodible or harder items. You know, if, if suddenly, there was a, a larger rock buried within the limestone and the over the years it was uncovered. Then as right. the as the wind or whatever is eroding it, it starts to hit that, it's going to change the way it erodes. It's if it hits that, it is going to now it doesn't matter if the wind comes from the same direction, it is going to change the way it affects the the structure, the the material. Um, oh,
1: for sure, for because sure. Because now it's changed. Yeah. Now the
0: environment's changed. The experiments changed.
1: Exactly, yeah. exactly. So this is uh, v- this this gets us excited, and this is what we geek <laughs> out about. Is that um, when you look at this problem, you've got a flow, be it wind in nature or water in our lab experiments, but that that flow maybe is kind of boring, coming from one direction, for example, in our experiments. Um, but but once the shape of the topography that it's flowing over begins to change because of the erosion, so because of the flow, uh, the local flow patterns for sure all change in, in complicated ways. And so it's a nicely like self-contained, I want to say, problem. It's all there. But what happens because of this interaction of the flow field with the changing 3D shape? what happens there is totally hard to predict from the outset so so that's why you know i think a lab experiment is super exciting about this is that you get to actually do a lab experiment and see what comes out of it and in that way hopefully understand and kind of like disentangle this very we we call it a very coupled or interactive type problem where you have the flow field coupled or interacting with the, the shape of the topography and it's a two way interaction right Mm -hmm. So the flow is eating the material, eroding it away. But the shape of the solid there is deforming the flow field. And it's a two-way coupling between the changing flow field and the changing topography that makes predictions hard to make. It makes even relatively simple problems like this yardang problem really hard and complex. And you get kind of new shapes that pop out in front of you that you wouldn't have predicted.
0: Just because of the way my mind works, I have this image of like this 1940s wind tunnel of like, you know, the airplane or, you know, the the wind going over the wing, you know, it's just, that's uh-huh. my my visual of you guys working in the lab.
1: It's actually not too far off, honestly. Really? Support comes
0: from the History's Trainwrecks podcast that focuses on stories like a temper tantrum that changed history, the president who promised not to run again and regretted it for the rest of his life, the World War II general who lost his pants on a secret mission in enemy territory, the History's Trainwrecks podcast, available now.
1: So we we choose to work with water as our medium. One of the big results in fluid dynamics is that there is one master equation named after a couple of guys, Frenchman, Navier, and I want to say a Scottish guy named Stokes, Um, but, but it's from the 1800s, but there's one master equation that describes the flow of fluids. And it'll involve things like the velocity, speed, you know, the speed and and direction of the flow, pressures and pressure differences throughout the fluid. And it's one equation that works for all fluids, air and water included. And the only difference in that equation for different fluids is some constants that appear in there. These constants that appear in the equation uh, are things like density or the viscosity, the stickiness of the fluid. And so this is very nice because we can actually do things like, study a problem like flow of air past an airfoil or a wing, we can actually study that with the flow of water past a hydrofoil, if you wanted to call it that, instead of an airfoil. So um, so we have a device, which is like a wind tunnel, but it's called a water tunnel. Its purpose in life is to present a constant current or stream of water in a certain region, uh, which is called the test section of the device, that has clear walls. So we can image inside there and measure aspects of the flow or the changing shape of the object in there, and it will present this like I call it a mathematician's river. Sometimes it's just a uniform flow of water in this region, and uh, what this device is traditionally used for is to study things like flow over a wing. So that would be a textbook type problem that you may want to you know study in here, and you could put a an airfoil or hydrofoil in there. You could study the flow as it zips around the object and look at the interesting things when you change the angle of attack of the hydrofoil and, and things like that.
0: And you said no. Let's 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 use this to study a giant rock creature out in the desert.
1: <laughs> that is a, our. That's what gets us excited. Is we want to use this thing in inappropriate ways. I love it. Uh, so we we put you know chunks of mud basically inside this thing. Let it erode. It is not, the device is not meant for this. We had to be very cautious in how we did this because, uh, you know, you are eroding material, sand, basically sandy grit, uh, and the clay is becoming waterborne, if you will. Mm -hmm. It's coming into the water, and the system has a turbine and such, the device that we have. So it's not clear that, you know, should this thing survive our (laughs) muddy experiments. So we, we 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 kind of sneak up on, on this and then check it and make sure that it's still operating all, all as it should, but it survived. And that's exactly our mindset. We, we want to use this in unconventional ways. And one of our projects is to study these uh, eroding mud balls, basically, or mud mounds and, and how they get reshaped.
0: Now, one thing that's a constant that I hear from all of my guests, as well as in just the work that I do, is it's always exciting when you find something that goes against what you thought it was going to be. Not that you were wrong, but you had a theory and you proved the theory wasn't what you thought it was going to be. Were there things that you were pretty sure you were going to see and then suddenly something else came out and you're like, that's not what I was expecting?
1: For sure. Uh, yeah, if everything comes out as you expected, we, in as uh, scientific researchers, we kind of get a little bit of a letdown there because, uh, well, then, I mean... I guess we could congratulate ourselves and say that we uh, have good predictive power or something. Yeah, it'd be um, boring. It'd be a little boring, <laughs> especially for a lab, for doing a lab. I mean, we, we have a, our applied math lab, which is a very rare thing to have an experimental lab in a math department. And one of the selling points of such a lab is that you should make discoveries there. And uh, that's what I think a, experiment, a good experiment is. It's a discovery machine. And it should pop out something that you couldn't have guessed from from mm. the outset. In in this case, uh, we sort of felt like we knew the ingredients that we would need to make a yardang, um, in terms of flow from a from a dominant direction and sort of like some some variability in the material, uh, in the composition and its erodibility. Um, but other than that, we didn't know how much we would get uh, from such an experiment. So we we Played around with the, with different um, kind of like shapes and positions and, and such for the, for the what I call the hard inclusion, the non-erodible bit that's in there, mm-hmm. and we played around with things like the flow speed, with things like the shape of the initial mound of clay that's surrounding this this hard bit, and uh, we found what, what what I think surprised us was pretty generically, we could get this sphinx-like shape. And maybe most, I think what was most striking to us is is, um, how much of the details of the shape came about kind of for free from how the flow, as you pointed out earlier, how the flow kind of reorganized itself once the hard bit became exposed. Hmm. And so what basically happened in the experiments is the hard bit became the head of the sphinx or the lion. And then once that sort of popped out, the flow rearranged itself, reconfigured itself, because obviously it couldn't erode that hard bit. So it had to to conform to to that. And once it was sort of, the flow was distorted by this, um, we got a lot of the other features of the sphinx popping out. So we got like, for example, very rapid carving of the neck underneath the head. This was totally unexpected. We didn't have any reason to think that for some reason the erosion rate would rapidly increase underneath this hard bit. But it did. It dug out the neck. And because of that, it leaves behind some forelimbs or paws that are kind of like on the ground in front of the Sphinx or in front of our little mini Sphinx. (laughs) Um, So that kind of like popped out on its own. And there were some other aspects of like the flow coming off of the back of the head. Uh, There, the flow is very turbulent and unsteady and maybe has a lot of vortices that are swirling around in there. And that carved kind of like uh, this arched back, it's kind of strung out downstream of the head.
0: Now, when you put in these harder, non-erodible objects into the mix, how did you decide where to put them? Was it completely random? did you Did you try to do experiments? If we put it here, this will happen. little a, little b uh,
1: yeah, we we uh, had some guesses about what might be the most uh, kind of like fruitful places and shapes for these hard bits. The hard bits, by the way, are just uh, chunks of plastic. Yeah, <laughs> um, <yeah. laughs> we we three d printed them in the lab just because we wanted to try different. Uh, Heights for the cylinders and you know diameters and things and so that was kind of like the easiest way to manufacture them quickly. Yeah. Um, and basically, from a series of, well, uh, really trial and error, maybe a little bit of kind of intuition and, and guidance by that as well, we found that as the shape of the hard bit didn't really matter too much. We we ended up doing a cylinder because again we're kind of math people and so we wanted like a. A shape that, that we could, uh, you know, that made sense to us in our in our thinking. <laughs> um, and so, but but basically, if you have this hard bit, whether it's a sphere, cylinder, cube, or whatever, it doesn't really matter. Um, if it's in in general, just kind of in the upstream portion, in the near the fr- in the front half, basically of the of the mound of softer material, then that's enough to uh, to give you the, this overall. Sphinx like shape. Yeah.
0: Now the big question, um, who cleaned up the mess? Like, did you pull did did you draw straws and the short straw on the team had to sweep up afterwards? Or I would because I would think there would be like you There's said a- earlier, you had to be careful because you were trying to do something that normally you don't do.
1: Yeah. So the nice thing <laughs> is with this water tunnel device, it's all it is self-contained system. So it's a, a water-filled apparatus that's maybe uh, two or three meters, maybe 10 feet long in the lab. And uh, you fill it with like 40 gallons of water. It's got a turbine on one end that's driving this flow across this clear test section that you use. But it's all self-contained. If you, as long as you don't spring a leak anywhere, your water just becomes muddy water and a little uh, turbid kind of uh, water that you can't see through. Um, but otherwise, um, no mess is made uh, much from the actual experiment itself. And you can just drain this muddy water down in their floor drain, refill it with fresh water from the tap, and and all is good. It, the experiments were messy around the lab in the sense of uh, we had to prepare this clay ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so we, we buy uh, a type of clay called bentonite clay. Bentonite clay comes as a nice powder. Mm -hmm. uh it's a powder to which you add water in a certain proportion and then you get like a stiff um clay that it kind of feels like cold peanut butter in terms of its stiffness Mm -hmm. so it holds its own it holds its shape uh but it's soft enough that in a high speed water flow this thing will erode away in a couple hours if you have a a chunk of it that's a few inches in diameter or so a few inches in in length scale Mm -hmm. it'll erode in um in a time that's convenient for us to measure the shape and do the experiment. Um, and, and this bentonite clay, by the way, is maybe familiar to some of your audience. I'm not sure. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's a type of clay that's used in face masks. Mm-hmm. So people are into that. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's very good at cleaning your pores and it actually loves to suck up water. So uh, you actually take a little bit of this clay powder, you add a lot of water to it and it feels like you're adding more and more water, like it's too much, but it just keeps absorbing it. And uh, even with uh, more water added than the clay, it's still a stiff material, like a stiff clay that makes it a good good specimen for working with in our experiments. It's a, it's available anywhere and everywhere. It's safe to put on your skin, safe to eat. It's also, yeah, a, yeah, yeah it's, it's uh, very convenient to work with because uh, obviously we, we don't want to, have to worry about even though we're we're scientists, we generally love to work with household materials. Yeah. I mean water and air are our our go to's in terms of yeah. our fluids. And then otherwise we we love to work with undergrads, undergraduate students, graduate students, and we don't wanna have to mask up and and, uh, glove up and things like that. Oh, that's
0: true. Because if you're using like a silica or if you're using other types of things, they could be potentially hazardous or.
1: Yeah, it could be hazardous. Uh, It may be hard to even get in the quantities that we need for our experiments. So there was a lot of, there was actually a lot of uh, uh, kind of trial and error work to find the right material at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, So and then that's where we settled on.
0: Hey everyone, I have been in the podcasting space for years and have hosted and created numerous shows and long ago I got my start in radio when I was just in my teens and I have loved every minute of it But I've definitely learned lessons along the way That's why I sat down and created the book how to start a podcast in less than a day I wanted to show people that creating their own podcast wasn't as difficult as they might think The book is a straightforward, step-by-step guide to take your podcast from concept to launch, as well as promotions and monetization. I love what I do, and you can have the same experience. No long-winded explanations, no selling of other courses or products, no expensive options, just down-to-earth, easy, step-by-step information on how to get your podcast launched without stress, often using the resources you already have, and without laying down a lot of money. And in less than a day. How to start a podcast in less than a day. Available now from Amazon. Check the links in the show notes and go up and start your own show. So one question I have is um so when I saw the initial story, you know, I read it and I went, Oh, this is interesting, and and I understood it. But I did notice it floating around in there with some headlines that basically sounded like clickbait basically sounded like, Oh, the Sphinx wasn't made by man. You know, it was these weird and people tend to fall for that. What's been the, the overall response do, do most people actually read your work and go, okay, I understand what you're saying. Or they're like, the Sphinx was created by aliens because these guys said so. <laughs> what? How? How are people responding?
1: Uh, well, it's a mix. Um. So. So. Uh. Yeah. We. I, I. love to do this kind of like outreach and public media stuff after one of our papers. Cause I think it's. You know, we we are we're funded by the federal government and some of our research, and so this is. You want to return something to the to the people and and mm-hmm. maybe spark curiosity and there's many many good reasons to do this, but uh, but one of the drawbacks, I mean, it is a double-edged thing and there are uh, the kooks out there who latch onto this and misinterpret things. And there's also, I would say, not even kooks, just, just kind of people perhaps in the media or after some of the clicks and the reads. And, and, you know, so they obviously kind of, I mean, go beyond dumbing it down. They misrepresent things. And so th- we kind of know that we got to deal with this as well. But yeah. but people people do that and there you know there's people who don't even interview us or don't even read our paper and then they write their article, and so you know of course then things get um, get twisted in different ways. But at the same time, we do get a lot of uh, um, you know real scientific inquiries that come about from this as well. People who follow up and say, hey, I saw that, uh, you know, this is interesting. You know, uh, I also saw this other type of landform. Could this be related? uh or you know you know so so we get the full gamut of craziness to just simple misinterpretations to ufos and aliens to <laughs> real like inquiries about collaborating with us and it uh you waiting everything. for
0: joe rogan to call <laughs>
1: uh yo, i don't know if i interrupt you you're it. like no i got
0: eric eric called me
1: yeah <laughs> eric's my guy It's covered um yeah, so so it's a it's a full gamut, and it it's a it's a it's a thing that we just have to negotiate.
0: So what I, I, you just said, other areas? Where are other areas that you get these types of of yardangs? I mean, obviously in the desert because you have a lot of wind. Um, yeah,
1: where desert desert is uh, is is the most common spot. So uh, definitely, I mean, in northern Africa and Egypt, they are they're there. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's ones that exist now and are in good shape and look like seated lion. Um, But basically, yeah, in Asia, South America, there's good examples of them, especially these like sphinx-like type, these mud lions or desert dog types. Um, I'm not sure if North America has good ones in our deserts. Um, I haven't seen that. I have a little collected compilation of them, but South America, Asia, North Africa, is uh, are good examples. And then they're also on Mars. So, I mean, uh, Mars has an atmosphere. It's uh, 100th the density of our atmosphere. So it doesn't have as much erosive power, but there are winds because of temperature differences on the planet, just like our planet. And so there are plenty of interesting formations and they include Yardangs. Uh, I don't know that they're that Sphinx-like type, you know, how how faithful they are to that uh, particular type. Uh, but for sure, there are definitely these uh, kind of outcroppings of bedrock that clearly are, have a harder bit to them. And so they have a certain kind of like topography that they carve around there when they interact with the wind. That's
0: fascinating. I mean, I would think that would be extremely valuable as the space program moves on. If you were able to take these the weather patterns to take these wind patterns and work with I mean, they're trying to land probes in this wind, and you're able to get the data from that to apply to your your experiments. Well, there's yeah. a grant. There's something Yeah. There.
1: For sure, I mean, for sure, definitely. I mean, one of the. I mean, okay, landforms are beautiful, and I think they there's plenty going for them in terms of just trying to understand how they come about. And honestly, that's probably our our legit motivation is mm-hmm. we. They're interesting they're fascinating let's let's figure them out but for sure when you um you know you look over any topography on earth you immediately i think w- want to wonder like what what were the conditions that carved this interesting pattern or made these interesting structures and you actually do get to infer the past conditions right that would lead to this and So that's that is actually scientifically valuable. You kind of ha- you have a little time machine there. It's written into the landscape, and you get to try to understand, uh, you know, how 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 did this come to be?
0: Is that where you find the beauty in the science? Is yeah, for sure. Because you get the little time travel right there. You get to look back thousands of years and
1: see. You get to look back thousands of years. You it, uh, you get to make inferences about the conditions that were there, and I think that I don't know, that that. Uh, gives me tingles (laughs) um and then and then definitely with the with the space travel stuff that you mentioned when we go to a new planetary body of any kind the moon or a planet or anything the information we have most directly as we do a flyby or whatever it's just the shape of stuff right i mean it's the the topography that's there the shadows on these objects and we get to look at those shapes and try to understand what are the forces and such that cause, you know, these formations rather than other ones. And so, you know, when we first looked at Mars up close, we saw things that looked like river channels, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, people were like, but, but Mars is dry. There's no, there's no flowing water. But by now we believe that, you know, there is water on Mars and it was, you know, there was, there, there was enough to flow around and carve some different patterns there and now the water that's there uh you know may be frozen up and maybe or maybe expelled largely from the planet or, or whatever it may be so so definitely we we get this very superficial look at a at a surface and we try to infer what's going on there and what has gone on in the past and that is a lot about reading into shapes right uh that's definitely a major motivation for our work
0: one of the very first shows that I did of of this show was with two geologists who work, who work out in white sands. Uh And they're the two geologists who actually the footprints that they found out there, they Mm -hmm. were able to date the footprints. I don't know if you've heard the story or you listen to the show.
1: (laughs) I think I have heard a little bit about that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. They were able to, because you can't date the rock, but you can date the materials that are buried in the rock. And they were able for so long, scientists said, oh, well, you know, 16,000 years man has been in North America. And these two geologists were able to go out and say, we can tell you by the pollen that we found buried in the footprint, that it's 10,000 years older. And it changes everything. And she said something very similar to what you said about. When she goes out and she sees these footprints, she can tell a story because she's like, There used to be a lake here. These people Mm -hmm. were kneeling at the side of the lake getting water. I can actually see by the positioning of their feet. And she said the same thing. She's like, It's a, she got tingles. She said kind of very similar thing. And that's, you get this time travel ability to look back in time. And she's like, I see the, the, the prince of the animals. I see and they all come to this place to get sustenance. Twenty five thousand years ago. So when you said that, I was like
1: that's that, really... that gave me tingles just now. When you yeah, it's yeah.
0: pretty special. That's why that I do this.